This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the CBS World News Today broadcast of December 27, 1942. It includes updates on the war from London, Algiers, Cairo, Honolulu, Buenos Aires, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes and more. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. World News Today, brought to you by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important world capitals, as well as the leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's John Daly. On this, the last Sunday of 1942, Columbia's correspondents at home and abroad are prepared to bring you the news of today's developments as the tempo of Allied aggression grows stronger. All three Axis partners are plainly showing their uneasiness about the future. They have good reason to. The news from the fighting fronts today is all good news for our side. But perhaps the best news for our side was the report from French North Africa that General Giraud had been appointed to the presidency of the Imperial Council. It is a development that deeply affects the relations among the French forces fighting with the United Nations. London, headquarters of the fighting French under General de Gaulle, can best tell the story of what Giraud's appointment will mean to the cause of French unity. So, for our first report from overseas, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS London, Bob Trout reporting. London's holiday rest is almost over. Newspapers were published today for the first time since Thursday. They're full of the Darlan case, for this is the first chance the British newspapers have had to deal with the assassination and subsequent events. Even today, three days late, the story the papers pieced together from North Africa is incomplete. One London editor complains the communiques from North Africa have been the least communicative ever issued. The half-hearted way in which Darlan was originally introduced added to the public bewilderment over the move. And now his murder is handled in the same way. Sharply illustrating the lack of fundamental public information here in London is a comment in today's London Observer that a detestable deed such as the murder of a leader, may easily lead to a demand for martial law in North Africa. Now, this comment, of course, implies that there is not martial law in North Africa, and yet the assassin was tried by a court-martial. As a matter of fact, there's some concern here about the swift shooting of the assassin in that atmosphere of secrecy. Indeed, the fighting French radio in Brazzaville has even said that the man who shot Laval in France months ago was given a trial more in accordance with law. 
this concern to get North Africa back on a basis of law, order, and democracy is not lessened by the possibility that Darlan's assassin may have been a fascist. The feeling seems to be that the muddle has gone on long enough, that the responsibility rests upon Great Britain and the United States, and that Britain and the United States must accept the responsibility for putting the organization of North Africa on a stable foundation. We have just been informed that the CBS correspondent in French North Africa is making a report, so we take you now to CBS Algiers, Charles Collingwood reporting. But now that zero is in, things are straightened out, and maybe we can get on with the war. What difficulties lie in store for the fine old soldier one can't foresee, but he has certainly stepped off to a good start. In Tunisia, mud and rain have once more claimed the battlefield. After the guards attacked east of Medjus El Bab on Christmas, activity has once more died down. Patrols go out every day and every night, but there has been no important fighting. General Eisenhower, as you know, was spending Christmas at the front when Darlan's assassination called him back. General Eisenhower saw press and radio correspondents today. He gave a vivid description of the difficulties at the front, but in spite of the hardships, you could see that the Commander-in-Chief at the Live Force Headquarters in North Africa came back with the impression that at the front, the men are in good shape, both physically and psychologically. This is Charles Collingwood returning you to CBS in New York. And now back to Bob Trout, whose report was interrupted so that you might hear the report of Charles Collingwood from French North Africa. We take you now to CBS London, Bob Trout reporting. I was just about to say that General Giraud, now selected to succeed Darwin as High Commissioner, is, of course, acceptable in London, and he's always been acceptable to the fighting French. Of the only other two men who had been considered to have a chance of being chosen by the Imperial Council, General Noguès of Morocco has shown more vigor in suppressing pro-Allied sympathizers than in stopping Axis infiltration. And General Boisson of West Africa is famous for the brutality of the measures he used against pro-Allied sympathizers. However, these two men remain on the Imperial Council, a group set up by Darlan and officially repudiated in behalf of the British government by Foreign Secretary Antony Eden. The situation now is that the High Commissioner, General Giraud, is a man who enjoys a large measure of approval in Great Britain. But the organization he heads is still a one-man rule affair, quite different from the form of government provided for by the French Constitution. And as I was saying a moment ago, the feeling here is that the responsibility for getting North Africa back to the French Constitution rests upon Britain and the United States. And there's also a feeling that the time is now. As one responsible London newspaper says today, when we take over Hitler's heritage in Europe, hatred, even fiercer than that which killed Darla, will be rife all over the tormented continent, and anarchy will prevail unless we live up to our responsibilities. Africa is our training ground for greater tasks. We must now show that we are able to create order 
out of chaos. That's from today's London Observer. And now back to New York and John Daly. More world news in just a moment. Now here's Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. Yes, and that word is simply an expression of Admiral's pride at being able to produce the kind of radio equipment in service with America's victory teams. On one of those teams is 22-year-old Corporal Harold Hazelwood. His job on an island in the South Pacific was to get the message through. Jap ships came, shelled the American installation, destroyed the communications hut, severely wounded Harold Hazelwood. Yet, within a few minutes, the undaunted corporal had dragged himself to the wrecked hut, got his battered equipment into action, and was sending the orders of his commanding officer to American shore guns. There is a victory team, a hero and his equipment, which got the message through despite all obstacles. Every admiral worker feels his responsibility to such teams, for admiral workers are building the radio equipment America's heroes use. And on this last Sunday of the year, Admiral's pledge is to continue building the best radio equipment possible as fast as possible for as long as our heroes need it. When the victory teams have accomplished their job, then, and only then, Admiral will return to making fine radios for American homes. Radios upholding the tradition that an Admiral radio is America's smart set. Now here once again is John Daly. And back to the news of the fighting fronts, some of the best news of which comes from Russia. The Red Army is now on the offensive on five fronts. In the Middle Don, southwest of Stalingrad, inside Stalingrad itself, on the central front west of Moscow, and in the Caucasus. Not only are the Russians fighting on five fronts, but they appear to be winning on five fronts. A midday communique from Moscow added 460 Germans to the 56,000 already reported captured in the Middle Don Offensive and listed a large amount of German equipment taken in the previous 12 hours. The noon communique and an earlier special communique claimed the Russians are within 105 miles of Rostov and that 60,000 Germans have been killed in the Middle Don area alone since that offensive started 11 days ago. There are reports of heavy German counterattacks, but the Russians say all attacks were beaten off and the Red Army advance continues. Southwest of Stalingrad, where the Germans have been counterattacking unsuccessfully in an attempt to relieve the 22 Axis divisions besieging the city, the Moscow communique said another force of Germans has been encircled and wiped out and that the Red Army advance toward Kotelnikovsky continues. Inside Stalingrad, the Russian guards divisions, which stopped the Nazis a few hundred yards from the Volga and held them off for weeks, are attacking, and they claim to have retaken more than 20 German blockhouses and dugouts. On the two remaining fronts, in the Caucasus and west of Moscow, Russian successes are on a minor scale. But in both areas, according to the Russian communiques, German fortifications have been breached and the Red Army is making slow but steady progress. That's the news of the Russian fighting as reported by Moscow. The German communique is evasive, but confirms that the Red Army is on the offensive all the way from Veliki Luki, west of Moscow, to Nalchik and the Caucasus. One thing in the Russian news stands out. The first Russian winter offensive was launched over a month ago at Stalingrad. The Germans have in that month regrouped and counterattacked desperately, but they have failed to regain their positions. This inability of the Nazis to break the momentum of the Russian offensives may mean that the Red Army can retake Rostov and a good part of the Ukraine. But that is all in the future, and there are days of hard fighting ahead, and we must not expect too much. Now, we heard just a few minutes ago 
from the Tunisian end of the North African fighting front. Next, Admiral Radio takes you to the other end of that front, to Colombia's correspondent in Cairo. This is Chester Morrison reporting from Cairo. Today I talked to that old standby, a well-informed source, and he told me about the progress of the war in Cyrenaica. And this is the gist of what he said. He said the 8th Army, which has been moving westwards now for two months and four days, has reached another of those periods of impatient quiet in which much hard work is done, but a period in which there is no excitement except for those who are clumsy about the mines. This period of quiet may endure for a while longer. After that, the immediate future of the war in Africa depends, I should think, upon our getting Tunis and Bizerta quickly, because those are the ports through which the Germans are supplying their armies. Those are still quite formidable armies, although their equipment must be run down. And pushing them out of Africa is still a quite formidable job, which will take more than a few days. In a way, I am glad that it will take time. I have sat here for months trying to tell you what you would see if you were here. And among other things, I have sometimes wondered when I would see my own countrymen here. I see them now, and I don't want them to go home too quickly. I don't want them to go home before they have been tried and tempered by the galling necessary chores of this peculiar kind of warfare. Until they have overcome the brash shyness which seems to distinguish us. Until they have absorbed some of the wisdom of my well-informed source, who said to me today as he talked about the prospects of battle, these things are not to be accomplished all at once. They will take a little time. This is Chester Morrison returning you to CBS New York and John Daly. That was Chester Morrison of the Chicago Sun reporting from Cairo. So much for the news from the European and North African fronts. Now to the Pacific War Theater. Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Honolulu, Webley Edwards reporting. This is Pearl Harbor. Not far from here to the east is the international dateline. Beyond that, it's already tomorrow. And where American forces are fighting on Guadalcanal and the Solomons, on the Papua Peninsula in New Guinea, and where American warships are cruising the Pacific, it is Monday, with only four days remaining of 1942. Down here, the Christmas season finds very little peace on Earth, and the expression goodwill toward all men is just a phrase from the copybook. Some weeks ago, we told you of the vast aerial pincers movement being developed by the United Nations, with one arm of the pincers reaching up through the Solomons, the other up through New Guinea. Yesterday's long-range bombing of Rabaul in New Britain and by our forces operating from Guadalcanal is just the beginning. For the situation in the Pacific today is this. Admiral Chester W. Nimitz, Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet, and General Douglas MacArthur, Commander in the Southeast or Southwest Pacific Area, have coordinated their air forces. They have done this so well that they have become a daily major threat to the Jap holdings in the entire Southeast sector of Malaysia. The air forces under Nimitz and MacArthur now have formed a network of attack over the entire area from New Guinea through the Bismarck Archipelago to the Solomons. They're a powerful threat to the Jap everywhere he lights in that area. A good example was yesterday's raid on Rabaul. A better example is the Jap's inability to use the airfield he's tried to operate in Munda on New Georgia. When the enemy was ejected from Guadalcanal and we took over, the Jap tried to build up this new airfield to the north. But systematically and methodically, we're plastering that airfield with our long-range bombers. The Jap cannot use it. 
As yet, there's been no decisive land battle in this part of the Pacific. The Solomons and New Guinea battles, while bitter, are not decisive. They are more in the nature of a whittling away operation. The larger actions of the Pacific are yet to come. They may be brewing now, maybe later, but they will inevitably come. Meanwhile, our forces are squeezing the enemy steadily backward, and our bombers are ever at work softening up his bases with bombs. Our boys gave them some devastating Christmas presents. For a Happy New Year greeting, I can tell you that from here on out, the Japs are going to get, as they say in the Navy, their bellies full of bombs. This is Webley Edwards at Pearl Harbor. We return you to Columbia in New York. Now for some news of our own hemisphere, of our Latin American neighbors. Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Buenos Aires, Herbert Clark reporting. This is Buenos Aires. Argentina has just sent Germany a Christmas present. But any arguments on the relative merit of giving or receiving are wasted. They overlook spectators who are happier than either participant. The present delivered yesterday was a note advising Berlin that this government believes German naval attaché, Captain Dietrich Niebuhr, is a spy and asking the Nazis to make him available for trial on espionage charges. That is necessary because Niebuhr is protected by diplomatic immunity. If he surrenders that immunity, evidence already released here forecasts a conviction. If he refuses, he would undoubtedly be deported. In either case, he would be lost to the Nazi king, and that is important. Even more important is the fact that Argentina is now prepared at last to call a German official a spy. That can't be much fun for Berlin, where Nazis have not been, been molested before. Nor does it make the local government happy. Argentina has been able to ignore Nazi agents and permit the German embassy to remain only because of a foreign policy of prudent neutrality. That policy was a haven until the United States handed Argentina a file on Nazi activities last month. While those memoranda are still secret, it is obvious that the information was similar to that given Chile last June and part of the basis for Under Secretary of State Sumner Wells' October charge that both Argentina and Chile were giving at least tacit assistance to the Axis by failure to stop those Nazi agents. Well, our evidence was strong, and some of Hitler's men have since confessed and implicated the German embassy. There's no indication that this development will bring a break in diplomatic relations, because the Foreign Office emphasizes that relations remain cordial. Still, American and United Nations circles are sure that this first exposure will impress Argentines who argue that Germany does not threaten this country. And that awakening might bring further action. This is Herbert Clark in Buenos Aires, returning you now to Columbia in New York. Washington has news of the latest development in food rationing, a development that will affect every family in this country. So Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Washington, Lee White reporting. Less than an hour ago, Secretary of Agriculture Claude Wickard, in his capacity as food administrator, directed the Office of Price Administration to set up machinery for the rationing of all canned, dried, and frozen fruits and vegetables. Tonight, from 8 to 8.30, a special program will be heard over most of these same stations. Mr. Wickard and Information Director Elmer Davis will explain the reasons for the new rationing program, which will take effect about the 1st of February, and why, contrary to previous official announcements, it will be not meat, but processed fruits and vegetables that will be rationed first. Widespread hoarding on the part of the public 
in addition to consumer canning quotas and the shortage of metals, is understood to be responsible for the decision to institute the rationing. Some 3,000, 3 million, 500,000 men between the ages of 18 and 37 will be drafted during 1943. The Selective Service Administration announced today that half this number of men will be made up of 18 and 19 year old youths and that the remaining 1,750,000 will be childless married men since the supply of single men from 20 to 38 years of age has now been virtually exhausted. The Navy has just announced that Douglas dive bombers from Guadalcanal have sunk a 3,000 ton Japanese freighter off Wickham Island in the Central Solomons. This afternoon, we have with us in our studio here in Washington, Colonel Marion C. Cooper, who has just returned from China. Colonel Cooper was with the China Air Task Force as General Chenault's chief of staff. He's one of America's veteran flying men, a combat pilot in the First World War and later engaged in civil aeronautics. He was also an explorer in time of peace. But the public will perhaps know him best as a film producer for his picture, the thriller King Kong, and such documentary films as Chang about the elephants of Siam and Grass about the wandering herds of Persia. But right now, the Colonel's main interest is the air war in China. Can you tell us, Colonel Cooper, about conditions in China before you left? Still tough, but getting better. Everything's on the upgrade. I dare say General Chenault and his men could use a lot more planes, however. Yes, we need planes, but not as many as you'd think. What we need is equality planes, and I believe that General Arnold's going to see that we get the planes we need. Would you say that the China Air Task Force at present is holding its own? Well, in the last big mission before I left, we destroyed 27 Japanese planes in the air. Strafed the aircraft on the ground and sank two enemy merchant ships in the Pearl River and Canton, off Canton. That was all in the same raid. That was just a month ago today, November the 27th. I was lucky enough to be flying with Colonel Morgan, the lead bomber, and to have Colonel Robert Scott and his fighters escorting us fighting just off our wings. It was the biggest air battle the China Air, For air Task Force has fought to date and the most successful combined fighter and bomber operation we ever carried out. The Japanese suffered a very real defeat, and we had only minor casualties. Of course, several of our ships were damaged by enemy fighters' anti-aircraft fire, but not a single one of them was permanently put out of action. You seem to paint a rather optimistic picture of things in China, Colonel. Don't get me wrong. Things are tough out there. There are few recreational facilities for the men, and little tobacco, cigarettes, American food, things like that. But in spite of everything that the men are up against, their combat spirit is high. For myself, I think I learned more about combat aviation the months I spent under General Chenault than I could have learned in 10 years in any other way. For, in my opinion, Chennault is a really great fighting commander, a genius in aerial tactics and strategy. He's only been, but he has only been able to do the magnificent job he has because of the generous cooperation of the Chinese people. 
They've practically done everything for us except fly and service the planes. I don't suppose, Colonel, you could tell us anything about General Wavell's campaign in Burma. Sir, I am not permitted to discuss that, but let's, let's, let's stick to China. Apparently, the present operations in Burma are designed to relieve the pressure on the Chinese army in Yunnan province. How serious is the situation in China? Last April, General Chenault, with only a comparatively few fighter planes, enabled the Chinese armies to hold their lines along the Salween River. Now his forces are stronger. He's got bombers as well as fighters. The Chinese are still in desperate need of all sorts of supplies, especially aviation. But if General Chenault, with his genius for air warfare, can get the planes he needs, and I think and believe he will, then the Chinese armies, with the help of both American and Chinese aviation, will hold Kunming and the rest of Yunnan until all hell freezes over. Thank you, Colonel Marion C. Cooper, for your very interesting comment. I now return you to CBS New York and John Daly. And now, Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. Here's a message from our sponsor, Admiral Radio. In peacetime, the world's largest manufacturer of radio phonograph combinations with automatic record changers. A survey made recently by certain schools shows that each child spends an average of three hours a day listening to the radio. Radio is providing our children with entertainment and instruction, with ideals, and with an understanding of the American way. Your children shouldn't miss the benefits of radio's dramatic methods of teaching, and they won't if your family radio is always in good condition. There's no need to tell you how to keep it that way. When your radio needs repairing, call the best man possible to service it, your Admiral Dealer. He will gladly take care of your radio, whether or not it bears the name Admiral. Your Admiral Dealer considers good radio service a patriotic duty. Your Admiral Dealer is a skilled technician. He has the facilities and the willingness to do a top-notch job economically and quickly. When you think of radio, think of Admiral Radio. From the bits and pieces of seemingly innocent remarks, enemy agents often are able to put together information of vital importance. This doesn't mean, of course, that all talk about the war is taboo. Just remember this rule. If you hear it from someone, don't repeat it. If you see it yourself, don't repeat it. But if you read it in the newspapers or magazines or hear it on the radio, then it's public property and can safely be discussed. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Our next news broadcast will be heard at 4.45 this afternoon. All the news all the time on time. Keep tuned to this station, 780, on your dial. This is the WBBM Air Theater, Wrigley Building, Chicago.